Hello and welcome to Bring Your Own Popcorn. Let us preach to your choir or stoke your ire as we spiral down memory lane with cult classics, jurassics, and other genres that rhyme with traffic. What we lack in education, we make up for with comedy, compassion, and camaraderie. I'm your host, Mixtape Majesty, here today with a hilarious and wonderful comedian, showrunner, and producer, Nicole Eichenberg. Welcome. Thanks so much for being on. Thank you for having me. You've chosen a, a wonderful film for us to look at today. And in an unusual turn of events, you've chosen one of my favorite movies. So that will be very Ooh. exciting to discuss. Mm-hmm. But first, <laughs> we're going to get into a bit of a sense of what kind of movie watcher you are. All right. What was the first movie that you remember seeing in the theater? It was the Jetsons movie. And I want to say I was probably four or five. I could look up when it came out and do my research and be a good guess. But anyway, <laughs> I do remember being young enough that I was like yelling stuff at the screen and people were laughing. So that's my memory of going to the movies. It was very interactive for me. <laughs> so your first memory of going to the theaters was already being a comedian? Yes, they're heckling anyway. <laughs> heckling, yeah. I don't think I even knew that there was a Jetsons movie. <laughs> I don't think you missed anything. <laughs> And to answer what you said about the research, you're the guest. You don't have to do any research. All you have to do is have feelings. I have so many. Thank you. (laughs) The Jetsons, the movie came out in 1990. Research complete. Thank you. What made me five or six? Do you remember like who you, did you see that with your family? I think I saw it with a friend of the family who was a little bit older. My memories aren't that great past a certain point uh, for various reasons. So I kind of just like fill in the blanks and like kind of imagine what happened at that time. So yeah, I want to say it was like a male friend of the family and I liked the movie as much as I remember. Do you remember the experience of the theater itself? Like, were you very excited by visiting the movie theater as a kid? I think I was, because I was yelling at the screen. So yeah. at least I was excited <laughs> once I got into the actual theater. I've also since learned to stop yelling at the screen. So if you're going to see a movie with me, don't worry, it's going to be okay. Oh, but I was looking forward to that actually. <laughs> <laughs> what you can do is you can go to the drive-in and then you can yell all you want. Oh. <gasps> Well, you have to get a megaphone so that other people can still hear you. It can be like a special feature at the drive-in, like with commentary by Nicole Eichenberg. (laughs) It's like the knockoff Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yeah. Hell yeah. (laughs) What was the first movie that you remember seeing in theaters without any parents or any supervising adults? I think it was Batman Returns with one of my mom's friend's daughters who was like four or five years older. And I want to say Batman Returns was 92, so it would have been like seven. And I had thought of that, you know, it's a little dark and a little scary for any kid but you know it was fun I like horror themed stuff and but isn't like superhero movies right yeah wow when you were seven that, I think that's the earliest I've heard of anyone going to a movie without their parents <laughs> oh wow <laughs> did you feel very like grown up and independent kind of but the friend I went with was like super bossy so that kind of squashed that down right quick Ah, uh, so it was sort of you were still sort of being supervised like babysitter vibes yeah <laughs> do you remember when you went with like a friend who was your age when it was more of just like we were free probably not till I was in high school I think I saw proof of life is the first one I can remember seeing with friends in high school and I went to the downtown theater with two of my friends and yeah I remember it was a really good movie we all liked it we felt like we were really grown up we were going to be graduating soon and it felt like a very adult movie to watch. I want to say it was the movie where where Meg Ryan met Russell Crowe and then she had left Dennis Quaid for Russell Crowe. It's just sad that's the one thing I remember that movie for is that scandal. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that sounds like a good one to see with your high school buddies. And it was a very good movie too. I should actually rewatch it now that I'm an adult and I like actually care about 
events in the world. Was it based on a true story? Maybe. I don't think so, but you know, it felt like the kind of movie that adults would go see. Yeah, I'm reading the description. It says, Alice, who's played by Meg Ryan, hires a professional negotiator to obtain the release of her engineer husband who has been kidnapped by anti-government guerrillas in South America. That's intense. That's actually a very intense movie to see in high school. Like most of my high school friends were seeing like, I don't know, the latest Josh Hartnett movie. (laughs) (laughs) I think I do well with intense movies because I don't know if I'm like undiagnosed ADHD or what but I have a hard time sitting still for movies it's like I'm like crafting or I'm like learning Japanese on the side it's like I can't just like (laughs) sit and watch something ironically I think most of my guests that I've ever had on this podcast have the same issue (laughs) like we all love movies but it's always like very hard to to watch them interesting I thought I was the only one I feel better now nah you're you're among good company Good. Well, that segues us neatly into our next question. <laughs> Overall, what would you say your relationship is with movies? Like, do you consider yourself a casual watcher? Is it just a hobby? I don't enjoy movies as much as I enjoy reading. The movies I do like, I'm sorry if you like romance, but I have a really hard time with romance movies. Me too. Yeah, I may have had my heart broken one too many times, but I'd rather watch like a good action horror sci-fi movie over that. There's a couple movies that have changed my life. One was, it's called The Family Stone. It came out in, I think, 2005 with Sarah Jessica Parker and uh, God, Lady from Annie Hall. I'm drawing a blank. Diane Keaton, that was it. I want to describe that a little bit because it is a very good movie. Uh, so basically, Sarah Jessica Parker is going home with her fiance or fiance to be to meet his family for Christmas and uh, everyone's acting really strange and uh, they never actually say the word cancer but like you pick up on random clues that his mother has cancer and that's why everyone is acting so strange by the end it kind of comes around to like everyone has to confront their fear of losing their mother and a spoiler alert at the end it's it cuts to the next year and like you kind of gradually realize it's like oh she's not there anymore so like she passed but life goes on you know someone had a baby the whole circle of life thing so that's one that I really thought kind of changed my view of life and you know what movies can be for me oh yeah that sounds really interesting definitely kind of life-changing you mentioned romance films and I feel the same way but not because I mean I have had my heart broken but that's not why it's more that I feel like most Hollywood romances are toxic like the the idea of romance they present is not my idea of romance and it feels very alienating to watch these and have it be like oh everyone thinks that's so cute and I think it's controlling and horrifying yes I'm gonna push a book for a minute which I know is not what this podcast is about but it's a really good book push it and thanks actually the book is about making a movie it's about this guy who with his family runs this like little inn on the side of a cliff in Italy the first line of the book is says like the dying actress like step off the boat onto like jetty and like it's a really beautiful first line and it turns out this woman thinks that she's dying and it happens that she um was seeing Richard Burton on the set of filming Cleopatra but then Elizabeth I can't remember anybody's names today (laughs) anyway the lady who was married like eight times Elizabeth Taylor yes thank you Uh, so she found out and so they um they told this lady that she was dying and they sent her away but it turns out she actually was pregnant whoa yeah so long story short the guy running the inn falls in love with her I guess long story short was a couple sentences ago but anyway almost done (laughs) (laughs) thanks he falls in love with her but it turns out uh, his girlfriend that he was seeing got pregnant so he decides to be a man and go and raise his son and lets this woman go and then later in life when his wife he goes back and tries to find her and it's a beautiful 
beautiful, beautiful story. I highly recommend it by Jess Walter called Beautiful Ruins. Great book. Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walter. I also like reading as well. Yay! Please tell me one of your favorite movies of all time and why, other than the one we're talking about today. So this is going to go against everything I just said about what I like in movies and books. (laughs) It's Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. Oh, nice. We did an episode on that. Was it with uh, Rhoda Ramon? Yeah. Yes, I love Rhoda because she and I love this movie too. Oh, yeah, I love Rhoda. Yeah, it's like you think it's going to be like a stupid rom-com reunion, but you know, it has a lot of funny one line, like a lot of great comedians in it, like Janine Garofalo. It never gets old. I notice new things every time and it's a fun one to see with your girlfriends too. And that one I did see in theaters actually in junior high. I just learned with my friend Liesl from school. So that I guess was the first one I saw on my friends. Oh, nice. That was your first one. Yeah. Yeah, that's a super fun one to see, especially with friends, girlfriends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, now that we have a bit of a, an idea of what kind of movie viewer you are, we are going to get into the wonderful film that you have selected for the episode. The movie that we're going to be talking about is based on a novella that was written by John W. Campbell Jr. in 1938. That novella was called Who Goes There? And it was first published in the August 1938 issue of sci-fi magazine Astounding Science Fiction. It was also printed as The Thing from Another World. It was adapted into film the first time in 1951 as The Thing from Another World. And in the 70s, another film adaptation was started as a more faithful adaptation of the novella. This production went through several directors and writers and filming lasted about 12 weeks in 1981, taking place on refrigerated sets in Los Angeles, as well as in Alaska and British Columbia, Canada. The film had a $15 million budget, 1.5 million of which was spent on Rob Botton's creature effects, which were a mixture of chemicals, food products, rubber, and mechanical parts. When this movie was released in 1982, it got a lot of negative reviews. (laughs) It It was described as instant junk, a wretched excess, and it was proposed as the most hated film of all time, by film magazine Cinefantastique. It did gross $19.6 million during its theatrical run, but the film found its audience when it was released on home video and television. Since then, it has been reappraised as one of the best science fiction and horror films ever made and has gained a cult following. Filmmakers have noted its influence on their work, and it's been referred to in other media, such as television, video games, comic books. We are, of course, talking about the 1982 American science fiction horror film. One of my favorite movies, The Thing. (laughs) Nicole, thank you so much for picking this wonderful film for the episode. Can you please give me a brief summary of your chosen movie in your own words? And spoilers are okay. Just go wild. There's a research team at a station. I can never say Antarctica. I have the hardest time. So I'm just going (laughs) to say like there from here on out. They're down there. And all of a sudden they start hearing noise outside. There's a helicopter circling. They see a dog running across the snow. Team is trying to shoot the dog. They're yelling things in Norwegian. The helicopter crashes. Research team takes in the dog. Turns out the dog turns into a monster. It shape shifts and turns anything that it touches or is around it into another monster. And it's not, you know, like Sully and Mike from Monsters, Inc. It's like this really (laughs) grotesque. It's like the special or the practical effects are just 
absolutely insane. Yeah. Like, I believe Rob Bodden was hospitalized because he did so much of the effects and he just didn't stop and it was just, you know, constant work. Wow. One guy spent a lot of time with the dog and, you know, people are around each other and they start to realize, you know, they don't know who is real and who's a monster. And so they start developing tests. No one trusts anyone. Um, That part does kind of remind me of the Twilight Zone episode, Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, Mm. kind of in the sense of it's like, if you're getting that suspicious, who becomes the monster at that point? Oh, yeah. And there's a bunch of other action scenes. At one point, they go to where they find out the Norwegians were working and they find what appears to be a spaceship under the ice. And then later on, people are killing each other off left and right. Once people turn into monsters, someone kills someone on accident who is actually a real human. And at the end, it's Kurt Russell's character and Keith David's character next to each other, uh, like sipping out of a bottle of whiskey. And a theory I actually really like uh, that someone mentioned is that McCree, who is Kurt Russell's character, put uh, oil or a gasoline in the bottle that George Childs, who is um, Keith David's drinking out of, and that's how he knew he wasn't human. That's why he's laughing at the end because he knows that he's going to die soon. I read that about the gasoline theory as well. The ending of this movie is like infamous for being sort of abrupt and open-ended like where you really don't Mm -hmm. know you don't know what kind of happened but yeah I love that theory what do you think happened do you think one of them was the thing or do you think neither was or both you know I'm drawn towards thinking that Childs was the monster because pretty much you kind of um I don't know I kind of like nihilistic endings and so it implies there that you know they didn't kill it it does go on to infect the entire world um like that simulation that Wilfred Brimley's character ran earlier yeah I don't know because I like Lovecraftian type stuff and this does have a lot of parallels to Lovecraft's work like especially you know with the whole thing like out in the boonies with the snow and like an alien ship crashes there uh and a lot of his stories end the same way too so maybe I'm just like kind of I've been groomed by Lovecraft to appreciate the ending of John Carpenter's The Thing how's that sound (laughs) yeah that makes sense (laughs) one of Lovecraft's stories was printed in the same magazine that this story was printed in so that makes sense Ooh, do you know which story i think it was the mountains of madness that makes total sense because i believe that was also the other one that the thing was based off of as far as like the locale and like the whole feel oh nice i think i like to think that child's had been infected because it just doesn't he disappeared for so long it just doesn't really Mm -hmm. make sense that he was just chilling and didn't yeah (laughs) (laughs) somehow survived being alone when no one else did but yeah I, I love the I love the ending the way that it it just sort of lets you decide what happened exactly there was a meme someone made a couple years back did you see the tweet that Wilfred Brimley replied because uh like some news magazine like posted like oh, scientists found like this ancient gelatinous creature like buried in the ice. And then Wilfred Brimley like pops in there with like, let me tell you why that's a bad idea. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) That's amazing. It is. But yeah, I kind of have some concerns about that gelatinous creature too. If it's there, I should probably just stay there for a little bit. This is not the time to bring that out. Yeah, we don't, we can't handle anything else right now. (laughs) Another fun fact. So you you talked about the Norwegians at the beginning and they're, you know, they're yelling in Norwegian. And Mm -hmm. so the American scientists don't understand them. So I looked up the Mm -hmm. translation of what they're yelling and this is what they say. Get the hell away from that thing. That's not a dog. It's some sort of thing. It's imitating a dog. It isn't real. Get away, you idiots. This must have been a really boring movie in Norway when it was released. (laughs) I know. (laughs) They're like, what are they doing? It's obvious. They already explained it. (laughs) So far, my Google search is not turning anything up. I don't know how big the movie 
industry is in Norway. Like I have genuinely no idea. That's a good point. It may have been local films at that point too. Like I don't know anything about history or like the way things travel. So maybe they just didn't have access to it. Did you watch the prequel that came out in 2011 that was also called The Thing? I didn't. I didn't even hear of it. It was kind of interesting. So what I liked about it is that if you're wondering like what happened with the Norwegians in the beginning of the movie, well, this tells you exactly what happened. The first group of scientists gets out there and they discover there's a ship under there and then they start looking for signs of life. Like they find the block of ice that still has a creature in it. Like they show them trying to thaw it out in the prequel. And uh, it's essentially the same premise. You know, it's like people turn into monsters. I did think it lost a lot with them using CGI rather than practical effects. Like, oh, bummer. Yeah. Like it looks okay, but like it doesn't have that like nitty gritty. It's Rob Botton said in an interview that when the the head comes off the guy they just did the defibrillation on and it's like scuttling away yeah. there uh, when Kurt Russell is flamethrowing it it's like they didn't realize it's flammable gas so when they're yelling and screaming they're actually screaming because they thought they were all going to catch on fire oh my god it's kind of a cool thing so. yeah they really were screaming yeah so, so I think maybe uh the prequel lost some of that with actors in front of a green screen but I don't know it was decent in its own with a lot of good actors in it yeah that's a good point that and that's one argument for practical effects over CGI no matter how good it looks is that the actors can't see the CGI at the end of the day I mean they they're just acting to a green screen or like a tennis ball on a stick rather than Mm -hmm. being able to see some kind of creature in person I think I personally prefer it. I prefer both the the acting atmosphere that it brings for the actors and then mm-hmm. they just always look better in my opinion. They do. Did you watch Society? No, I never heard of it. It was a Brian Usna film that came out, I want to say 88, 89. Uh, the effects were done by Screaming Mad George. A long story short, it's like aliens and they do this thing called shunting at the end where basically like all of these people form and like meld into this giant orgy and it's like the most grotesque awful thing to look at and it's all practical effects done by this Japanese dude and I love it for that but the movie is incredibly creepy and very very body horror and weird very Cronenberg Ooh, yeah sounds disturbing probably wouldn't be able to watch it but I appreciate hearing about it (laughs) speaking of Cronenberg are you planning on going to see Crimes of the Future uh no I haven't heard of it because Cronenberg had another movie called Crimes of the Future that has nothing to do with this one I'm still confused by that Hmm. but I guess a bunch of people like either threw up or walked out of town when this movie was released at the film festival oh yeah I've seen posts about that yeah so I kind of want to maybe I'll like rent it so I can take a break when I need to but it's like I like body horror and I just I like Kristen Stewart and like the other actors I don't know I'm kind of grown to even though I know it's gonna gross me out yeah (laughs) yeah you'll have to let me know how it is I'm trying to think of I don't know if I've seen any Cronenberg his son had a neat one that came out a couple years ago I think 2020 called Possessor that one was super trippy I'd recommend that Mm, okay Possessor Mm -hmm. oh I've seen The Fly I love The Fly yes I think that's it (laughs) yeah that's the only one I've seen Anyway, random note back to the thing because I've kind of gone off on like random tangents. <laughs> yeah, no um, worries. Tangents are good. Another thing I really love about the thing is the music. Ennio Morricone, the guy who also did the good, the bad, and the ugly, did the bulk of the music for it. But at the end, John Carpenter realized it's like, I guess I need more music. So John Carpenter like got a synthesizer and just like wrote the random, you know, the beginning and the end bumpers that dot dot. And it's just like very, very eerie. It sets the scene very well. Yeah. So that's all John Carpenter right there. Oh, nice. Wow. Yeah. Ennio, Ennio Morricone or however you say it. He's, he's amazing. Yeah. Like some of the best sound 
contracts in Hollywood, I think. He is. I think he recently just got like some award too from the Academy Awards. He did finally. Yes. (laughs) Ridiculous. Yeah. But uh, what's your favorite scene out of the thing? What would you say? I think it's when everyone's tied up and they're doing the blood tests because that the tension and suspense in that scene where like you as a viewer do not know who's infected and they don't know who's infected and you don't know like when the jump scare is going to come even though you know it's coming that, that's mm-hmm. just a perfect balance of horror and tension and I like at the end of that god I forgot his name the older guy is it Jerry I'm not sure either <laughs> after the dust is settled he's like hey can you cut me out of this fucking chair because he's yeah. stuck there through this whole mullet <laughs> yeah. yeah he's like gentlemen I understand you've had a difficult day but get me the fuck <laughs> yes. off the couch <laughs> yes <laughs> his delivery was flawless yes and I think my favorite scene is the one not too long after that or right before it where the doctor is uh, using the paddles on the guy's chest and it's like it opens up and bites his arms off and I love that they use an actual amputee for that and they just like tore off his feces or whatever they use for his forearms oh wow yeah it was like acted super well and then like I love how the head scuttles away too it's just spiders freak me out Ugh. So creepy, yeah. All the all the practical effects in this are are horrifying in in the best way. They're very well done. I think John Carpenter told a story of like he had some producer like get into a trench coat and a hat, and for the scene where the dogs were freaking out when the thing starts to change in the cage, yeah, he started like banging on the windows and like making weird noises so the dogs would freak out. So like that's the dogs like legit freaking at something happening. Oh, yeah. I wondered about that. Like I did feel definitely anxious for the dogs in this movie at the beginning of the movie both like what was making them freak out although that's not too hard yeah to like bang on the windows and stuff to get a legitimate protective response from them Mm -hmm. but like there's a scene at the beginning when the dog is eating the fence and I was like how did they how did they do that is the fence made out of like beef jerky or something (laughs) it looks like metal yeah because it looks like it's painful too like the dog's probably losing teeth yeah yeah but and even like even like the way the dog is walking at the very beginning Mm -hmm. it's freaky and apparently the dog just did that and they didn't have to like coach it or anything but like maybe because we know something's wrong with it it just seems like very odd behavior for a dog it does yeah fascinating this is the space where the ads go welcome to the phantom dude box i'm ty and i'm joe and we're two musicians that dive into the world of music its myths conspiracies and bizarre music history we discuss things like did elvis fake his own death is stevie wonder really blind is dolly parton's husband actually real find out all that and more on apple podcasts spotify pandora or your favorite streaming service hi and welcome to morning cup of controversy My name is Rai, and I'm beyond excited to share my unpolished and unfiltered opinions with you. In this podcast, I'll touch on some heavy topics such as true crime stories, mental health stigma, and LGBTQIA plus rights. Other episodes will be a little lighter, talking about school systems, art, lucid dreaming, and much more. It's okay to have these conversations, and I think it's about time we do it without the guilt. My weekly episodes will include a question of the week to keep your mind turning until next time, and a quote to keep you motivated for everything you do before then. Guests will include family, friends, and hopefully listeners like you. All opinions matter, whether you're an A-list celebrity or just some girl from the middle of nowhere, Texas. I want your voices to be heard too.
So grab your cup of coffee and start your day right with Rye's Morning Cup of Controversy. Hey everybody, I'm Amber. And I'm Maddie. And, and we're, we're Witches Talking Tarot. Tarot. And we've brought you a show all about the occult. We're talking different lores and mythology. Yes, creature features, cryptids, aliens, you name it, we'll cover it. Conspiracy theories. Absolutely. And pagan holidays and 100%. All eight of them. Spiritual living, you name it. That's right. We've got it for you. So if you want, come sit with us for a spell and let us make you laugh. We are Witches Talking Tarot. Thanks, everybody. Hi, I'm Milk, and this is a promo for my podcast, Nymphomercial, where me and my co-host review hentai, both enthusiastically and regrettably. So if that sounds like a good time to you, find Nymphomercial wherever you get podcasts. Getting back to your experience of the movie, what was the first time you watched this movie? Where did you see it? Who did you see it with? What was your response to the movie when you first saw it? And has your response changed now? So I hate my stupid, much younger self for this, (laughs) but I didn't want to watch it. An ex-boyfriend made me watch it. I was really bored the whole time. (laughs) I was a teenager then. I have since matured very much and grown to love and appreciate all the hard work that went into making this movie. (laughs) I apologize, high school boyfriend, you were right. I mean, it's always good to be able to look back. I mean, we don't need to say that any men were right about anything, but it's always good to to look back and be able to see that you've you've grown or changed, you know? Yeah, I guess therapy's worked. Yeah, therapy has allowed us all to enjoy the thing. Would you say that this movie has changed or affected your life in any way? I would say that it made me look more into practical effects and body horror movies, more like cosmic type horror. I really have started recently looking into old horror movies like Society, like I was saying, some older Cronenberg stuff like Videodrome. And I'm starting to appreciate the craft of it more, like everything that goes into making this stuff, we all just take for granted. Yeah, for sure. Is that, is filmmaking or practical effects something you wanted to do yourself? Not, not that I can consciously think of. I do think it would be a cool thing to do. But after hearing how Rob Botton passed out because he was so tired from making the stuff for the thing, maybe it's not the career for me. I need sleep. <laughs> yeah, that is very intense. Although, I mean, that could definitely be the constraint of the production, like where they were on a time limit, but it could also be mm-hmm. his choice. Like, who knows if if he was choosing to like pull all nighters when he didn't have to or if like he really had to. Or if he was like the Bob Cratchit of like John Carpenter's The Thing. Please, <laughs> sir, I'd like to go home. Yeah, <laughs> he was forced to. No, make more jelly. <laughs> sir, it's Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's snow. That means it's Christmas season, right? It's always Christmas season in Antarctica. I didn't realize until you told me this show that they used it like refrigerated sets for. That's really cool. Yeah. It makes a lot more sense. Yeah, fascinating. I I, I guess probably that the 
big shots of the exterior were probably the ones that were in Alaska and Canada. Mm-hmm. And then I guess all the inside cold stuff was in freezers. Must have been a really weird set to work on if it was that cold. And also with like the cast too. I wonder how that affected them. Yeah. Or even like the prosthetics, how like it worked on like all the practical effects and the foam and Vaseline and all that. Oh yeah, that's a good point. I must have, that. maybe that's why Rob had to work overnight is because there's probably a lot of unexpected mm-hmm temperature interactions that's a very good point poor rob i know poor rob you did good work rob keep it up if you're still around (laughs) googling it now rob botten uh he also worked on robocop yeah he's only 63 oh wow he's a young one yeah so he would have been how old would that make him he was born in 59 so how old would he have been in 82 20 think so yeah pretty pretty young anyway wow one thing i thought was interesting and i'll ask you what you thought about this scene and what it meant about mccready's character mm-hmm. at the beginning of the movie something that i didn't like about the character anyway he is shown mccready is shown playing chess against a computer which infamously is the only female voice in the movie mm-hmm. the computer has a female voice he's playing chess against the computer and the computer gets him in a checkmate and he was like had this cocky attitude where he was like haha you think you're you're losing again huh you can't you just can't stand it and then she gets checkmate <laughs> and he responds by pouring his glass of whiskey and ice into the like motherboard of the computer (laughs) which especially in the 80s like not everybody had computers it wasn't like you just went to radio shack to pick another one up like i just thought of it too i like how they're all like yelling at wilfred brimley's character later for like destroying the electronics while mccready just like dumped a whole like double of whiskey into the motherboard like you said yeah and when he when he did that there wasn't even a crisis going on like yeah (laughs) all they knew everything was fine yeah I used to take a taiko drumming class with a lady who took a year and she worked in Antarctica on one of the stations and she said you start getting really weird after a while there like you're so isolated like you start to hate your like workmates just I can't even imagine. Oh, I bet. Yeah. I feel like some people got a taste of that over the pandemic, just being isolated with their roommates and stuff, but it still wasn't even as bad because at least you have internet and everything and way out there. Yeah. I mean, they didn't even have internet anywhere, but (laughs) yeah, or just about anywhere, but but yeah, they're stuck out there. The computer is one of their only sources of entertainment and like knowledge. And he just dumped whiskey in it. And the thing that I thought was really inter- or really interesting about that and his character, but seemed inconsistent, is that McCready is ultimately the main character mm-hmm. since he's kind of becomes the leader and he's anticipating the things, moves and staying one step ahead of it the whole time, ultimately surviving at least to the final frame, mm-hmm. even if we don't know his his outcome after that. And that didn't seem to match up with the whole pours whiskey into the computer thing, because that seemed like a man who will give up Hmm. when if there's even a hint that he well, I mean, I guess if you get into checkmate, you're pretty much like it is game over. Yeah. So I guess it's telling us that if he if he knows he's going to lose, he will just give up. Hmm. Maybe that was like his character arc in the story. It's like he gave from giving up to, I guess, trying as much as he could until the end. Yeah, unless. Unless it was supposed to be reflected in the final scene. Maybe, maybe he was just giving up when he was talking to Childs again. He was like, oh, okay, checkmate. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. That kind of brings it back around. Yeah. Very interesting. Could be that. I did like too, because I think to a certain extent, people were like, we can still get out of here. But like when they're in the tunnel and uh, Kurt Russell's like, look, he's like, we're all going to die, but we can stop it from getting to everybody else. Yeah. And I thought that kind of like was a point where he maybe 
where I maybe realized more he was the leader as opposed to, you know, how he was kind of like a dick drinking Jim Beam before. Yeah, (laughs) totally. (laughs) Yeah, it definitely brings up that question of like, would I do the same thing? Like, would I sacrifice myself and everyone there knowing that if we don't, I think my fear would be, what if we sacrifice ourselves and it doesn't work? Like, how can we make it effective that yes, we're all going to kill each other, but also kill the alien? Because it just seemed, it seemed undefeatable with the fact that just like splashes of blood could crawl away and reproduce. Yeah. As far as the like coming to terms with things, like this is nowhere near that, but like I work in direct patient care and at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, we were still seeing COVID patients in clinic, just in negative pressure rooms with like the full gown, gloves, facial gear thing. Mm-hmm. And I actually volunteered the whole time to go in and do it because all my other coworkers had kids. So I was just kind of like, maybe it's the depression talking, but I'm like, maybe this is why I never had kids. You know, it's, this is what I was supposed to do with my life. Mm-hmm. So I know we all got very, uh, very spiritual when COVID started and kind of came to terms with our own mortality. Yeah, that makes sense. And thank you for your service. Oh, you're very welcome. I thank you. I salute you. Thank you. And thank you <laughs> for your service that we talked about earlier with your job. You're doing good work out there. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Hopefully we never encounter a thing worse than COVID because <laughs> COVID's pretty bad. I certainly hope not, but we shall see. <laughs> yeah. Now monkeypox is hitting us, so. Oh my God, I know. It's wild. Strange times we live in. Indeed. It's funny that you bring that up because I remember, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, I was thinking of this movie a lot and how COVID is like this invisible monster because it's unlike, well, unlike the thing, ultimately the thing comes out and makes itself really obvious in these horrifying presentations with multiple legs and creepy crawly stuff Mm -hmm. but COVID was like almost scarier because you would never know like it's not visibly showing on anyone's face or or organs or limbs on on the outside (laughs) that is true I was also interested too like I forget the exact lines but like when they're starting to split up and like go to this place and someone's like, you go with Childs. He's like, I don't want to go with Childs. And Childs is like, why not? And he insinuated it's because he's black. I thought that kind of interesting too with like the racial dynamics of like how there's two people of color at the station and everyone else is white. Yeah, very true. I wasn't sure if it was because he was black or if it was supposed to be just like his personality or whatever oh good point maybe that's just a jumping to conclusions there I mean I did too because you have to assume especially with an older film like they've got to be racist right like you just expect them to be you know it's like I keep thinking and like I'm privileged but I work in redacted we have a lot of people who come from like up the hill I call them the hill people (laughs) and they'll just say things like like I had a new coworker come in and she called a patient colored and I was like, oh I'm like, you can under no circumstances ever say that word. And she's like, well, other people, I'm like, no, I'm just like, stop. And she got really pissed, but it's like, it's like, I think that people are, are maturing and getting around. And then I hear someone say that word. Wild Shame. in this day and age. That's so wild. Mm-hmm. Hill yeah. people. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts or feelings you have to share about why you think people should watch this movie or why it's a special movie? Oh yeah, the one thing I was gonna say that I kind of got sidetracked into like a million different things about the (laughs) prequel to the thing. Yeah, no worries. Is that it ends, yeah, it ends with the husky escaping from the camp and the helicopter chasing it. So you can just like, finish that go straight into the thing from 1982 oh that's awesome as like a continuous four-hour movie yeah. I love that so if you ever want to try that yeah I love it too and that's 
I think that's what saved the prequel for me is that they did that. And the prequel is also called The Thing? It is. It's like David Cronenberg, I guess, and people who make Thing movies need to like be more creative with the names. Because I'm going <laughs> to get confused between like Crimes of the Future 1 and 2 and like The Thing 1 and 2. It's, I don't know. It's very confusing for me. That is confusing. Although you could think of it as just like, do you remember how Titanic in the 90s came on two VHS tapes? Yeah. And it was just one movie, but it was like so long they couldn't fit it on one VHS tape. So it was two. That's basically what The Thing in 1982 and The Thing 2011 are. They're just two different VHS tapes. Yes. Oh, God. You know what it also reminds me of? And I'm sorry to even bring this into anyone's thoughts right now. (laughs) Is the Human Centipede trilogy where it's like you can watch it from beginning to end. Yeah. (laughs) I've only seen the first one. If you don't know what they're about, anyone listening, do not look it up. Just forget you ever heard about it. The end. (laughs) I did not know there were multiple films, but yes, the end. <laughs> yeah, I've um, I've looked into the plot lines for the other ones, and they just keep getting worse and worse. Tom Six just sounds like a person I don't want to meet based off the things he does to women in his movies. Yeah, I didn't. So it's like mainly the the horrors of those movies are mainly against women. I would say they're more emphasized if that makes sense. Gotcha. Like there's horrors for men too, but I think the men get to regain some dignity where the women don't. Gotcha. Yeah. That tracks for Hollywood. It does. You know, I just, I just read an interesting statistic this morning and I'm just going to paraphrase it because I don't remember the exact numbers or maybe I do. We'll, we'll, we'll see. I read an article this morning that said that when they film movies, they have to make sure when there's a crowd They have to make sure that the crowd is only 17 to 33% women because male viewers, if there's 17% women, male viewers perceive the room as being half men and half women. And if there's 33% women, they perceive there being more women than men. (laughs) Isn't that wild? I have so many, I have so, so many thoughts about that. Uh... (laughs) Share some. (laughs) Kind of like a tangential thing I was thinking of. Um, like, I'm sure you noticed like Nev Campbell left Scream 6 over disputes over her pay, which is a shame because if you think about Scream, like the original Scream, I guarantee you the first character in your mind is either Nev Campbell's or Drew Barrymore's. Mm-hmm. And the men are just making so much more. And that's, it's a shame that Hollywood's still that way. Yeah, that's horrible. On that, on that line, the thing famously has no women in it except for the computer voice, like I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. What what do you think would be different if either one woman scientist was added to the thing or or what do you think would it would be like if they were all women? Just for curiosity's sake. <laughs> I'm going to reference the prequel, The Thing, for this. Uh, they made Mary Elizabeth Winstead the main character. Ooh. And another woman, I forget who is another supporting character, and the arguments didn't nearly get as awful. So it kind of spoke to me that having all the men together made it so much worse. Mm-hmm. And like they killed the innocent person. And that was kind of the message I took from watching both movies. Wow, that makes me want to watch the first or the prequel even more. That's awesome. Yeah, just the special effects I'm sorry about. They just can't top the original movies. Yeah, what a bummer. I wish they just would have kept it practical. Yeah, but I guess practical may be less cost effective than CGI now, I imagine. Yeah, probably because they they probably budget for it now. They probably have a budget for CGI and maybe don't have as much of a budget for practical, which is just, it just sucks, man. Yeah. Like, what's that movie? It's the Winged Serpent. Cue the Winged Serpent. Mm -hmm. I guess what you're supposed to do in Hollywood is when you're doing CGI, you take like your storyboards to the special effects place, CGI place first, and then they tell you how to film it. But instead, the guy who made Cue 
did the opposite where he filmed everything then took it to a cgi place and they're like what do you want us to do with this oh no that's part of why it looks so bad in cue the wing serpent (laughs) (laughs) that's funny i think uh i was thinking about that when i watched this movie like i've seen it probably five times before but i i was just thinking about like hmm i wonder how this would be different with a woman with women and i think and obviously we're stereotyping a little bit in that women just mm-hmm. tend to be better at communicating, not always, but they tend to be better and tend to be socialized to communicate more because we have to, to protect ourselves and to maintain the community that we are expected to maintain. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest difference I can imagine is if Blair, the guy played by Wilford Brimley, mm-hmm. there's a point in the beginning of the movie where he could have steered the ship in a very the the metaphorical ship in a very different way because he knows what's happening and what does he do instead of telling everybody what's happening (laughs) he does two things one every time anyone asks him what's happening he stares into space (laughs) (laughs) maybe that's what he's referring to (laughs) two (laughs) yeah two he isolates himself and just cuts himself off from everybody and won't talk to anybody but he knows what's happening. He knows exactly yes. what's happening. He's running simulations on his computer and knows what's happening and knows the potential outcomes. <laughs> Instead of telling anybody, he isolates himself and then he starts like sabotaging the like, what do you call it? The helicopter and stuff like that, which is the right thing to do. But he doesn't tell anybody what he's doing. So then they're like, yeah. oh my God, he's crazy. He's trying to kill us. And it just creates this atmosphere of panic that could have been avoided if he'd just been like, y'all, this shit's bad. <laughs> this is- you know, I. I'm wondering though, would they have would they have listened to him? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's I don't know. I guess that's why he didn't say anything. But what's worse is like saying the truth and nobody listens to you, or not saying anything and everyone like spirals into a confused panic. That's true. I also really I don't know. It always stands out to me with like when they open the window when they lock him in the shed and the noose is there. Mm-hmm. It's, it always shocks me because like they never reference it, but it's like you just know it's like if something gets him, he's gonna do that first so he can't turn into one of the monsters yeah yeah that was a really uh, a really interesting and like dark note mm-hmm. if you could have made any character from the 1982 movie female which one would you have picked i think blair for that reason either blair or mccready that's true that's a good point but yeah i think blair yeah because no one listens to the woman scientist anyway that's true so it's just another day <laughs> yeah yeah she'd be used to it yes <laughs> That or child would be interesting as a woman, too. Hmm. Yeah. Or the doctor of feminism, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who's the doctor? Well, any any other final notes on why people should watch this movie? It's a classic practical effects. You can see exactly what they can do. And just it's all, all around good thriller, mystery, horror movie. Great actors. Very true. And like I said, this is one of my favorite movies. So I was very stoked to get the chance to watch it again and, and talk to you about it. this was fun thank you yeah this is super fun thanks for being on you're welcome and as i mentioned earlier you're a comedian and a showrunner and producer if people would like to find you online let us know where they could find you and let us know about any upcoming projects or shows that you have going on uh i am on pretty much all social media accounts at nicole is just okay i co-host three soon to be possibly five shows at stab comedy theater and speaking of having female characters in 
scripts. I actually wrote a, uh, an audio drama script a while back that is all female except the one male line. And I'd like to work on that. He would actually be a good voice for that. So we're going to talk about that later too. Hell yeah. And that's kind of things. That's kind of things I have in the works. Sweet. Well, thank you so much again for being on. This has been a super fun time. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. And um, yeah, listen to Bring Your Own Popcorn, everybody. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bring your own popcorn.